Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. We acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. <coughs> Professor Golson and family, your excellencies, colleagues, friends and the good burghers of Canberra here present. Uh, my name is Matthew Spriggs, and I'm standing in for the director of the ANU Centre for Archaeological Research, Professor Simon Haberley, who sadly is not able to attend this evening and chair the proceedings, although I have to say he's entirely responsible for the organisation. The Golson Lecture is held biannually to honour the work of Professor Jack Golson, uh, who is Emeritus Professor of Archaeology at the ANU, and he's a founding figure in developing modern archaeology in several Pacific nations, and he remains an active researcher investigating the evolution of horticultural economies in our region. The first Golson Lecture was held in the year 2000, and this is now the eighth in the series. We're, as usual, honoured to have Professor Golson and his wife Claire with us here tonight. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker for the evening, Professor Graham Barker, current holder of the Disney Chair of Archaeology at Cambridge and director of the Macdonald Institute for Archaeological Research. Now, Graham is unique in the history of the world for several reasons, I'm sure. Not least that he is the only person in the entire universe, as far as I know, who has given both the Mulvaney Lecture and the Golson Lecture. Uh, the Mulvaney Lecture in 2005 and the Golson Lecture here tonight. Graham started his archaeological career as an undergraduate student at St John's College, Cambridge, as many brilliant archaeologists have before and since, he says modestly. He then went on to complete his PhD at Cambridge as well. He became a lecturer at Sheffield University before heading off to Italy to become director of the British School at Rome. He then returned to the UK at the University of Leicester in 1988 as professor, then dean of the graduate school, and finally pro-vice-chancellor. His current appointment in Cambridge began in 2004, succeeding a previous Mulvaney lecturer, uh, Colin Renfrew. And Graham retires in a few months at the end of uh, September, I believe, when he'll be replaced by Cyprian Broodbank, who will be the 12th holder of the Disney chair since it was established in the 1850s, I think. Graham's CV lists over 200 publications, including 30 books written or edited, which are out or some are in press. These include more recently, The Agricultural Revolution in Prehistory, Why Did Foragers Become Farmers in 2006, Archaeology and Desertification, with David Gilbertson and David Mattingly in 2008, and the edited volume with Monica Janowski in 2011, Why Cultivate? Anthropological and Archaeological Approaches to Foraging, Farming, Transitions in Southeast Asia. And most recently, the first of several volumes, uh, uh, resulting from the Near Cave Project in Sarawak, uh, has just, just come out, it's hot off the press, Rainforest Foraging and Farming in Ireland, Southeast Asia. His research interests have focused principally on relations between landscape and people in Europe and the Mediterranean in arid zones, particularly Libya and Jordan, and in tropical environments, particularly Sarawak. Most recently, this year in fact, uh, he has rather bravely won fields, uh, been conducting excavations at Shanidar in Iraqi Kurdistan, from where he sent us several uh, emails on his uh, iPad or iPhone or something. It was all very... Uh, very dramatic. Um, he's also actively promoted archaeology and higher education in a number of roles in the UK. He's a fellow of the British Academy and is a past president of the Prehistoric Society. Please welcome Professor Graham Barker to deliver, deliver the 2014 Golson Lecture on the topic, Why Did Our Ancestors Become Farmers? It's an enormous pleasure to have been asked to give this talk. Um, actually, I went to as that introduction is given, I've had a sort of peripatetic career, and I think there are academics who, who know a lot about a little, and those who know a little about a lot, and I'm 
very definitely in that second category. And I actually went to university to do classics, and I did half a degree at Cambridge in classics. And then for reasons I'm still not very clear about, I changed to prehistoric archaeology. And it was partly as a result of meeting um, Colin Renfrew, who, as Matthew said, he, he was my predecessor as the Disney professor uh, at Cambridge, and he also got the endowment that, that created this McDonald Institute. Um, and he was a postdoc at Cambridge at the time. He was just starting his lectureship at Sheffield. Um, and I met him at a party just before my classics exams. Um, anyway, and he, he persuaded me um, to change to prehistoric archaeology. Um, and at that time, you could, at Cambridge, you had to choose, you had to do the Paleolithic. And the homily was always, if you wanted to travel, do the Paleolithic, because there was this tradition of people like John Mulvaney and many others who studied, and you could take the Paleolithic uh, anywhere with those kind of expertise. Um, or there was what was called NBI, which was Neolithic Bronze and Iron Ages of Europe. Um, or you could do Iron Age Roman, Anglo-Saxon, and other things. So as a result of meeting Colin Renfrew, and, and as also as a result of going to one Paleolithic lecture, um, which seemed extraordinarily boring. Um, and it, it, I remember a lecture which indeed looked like a map of Europe in 1945 with enormous arrows all over it. Um, and anyway, I, I, I stuck with this Neolithic Bronze Age, Iron Age. And there we have a picture of young Barker um, up the top left. On, uh, the, went to my first excavation, which was a Neolithic site in northern Italy uh, in the August of that year. And then the September of that year, I went to excavate on a Paleolithic site called Kostritza in Epirus in northwest Greece for the person who became my supervisor of my PhD, the person in the sweater with a hunched shoulders, who's called Eric Higgs. And that's, again, young Barker half off the picture on the left, like a refugee from an ex-army clothes shop at the time. Um, and I was taught mostly um, by Graham Clark, who was the Disney professor at the time, rather aloof figure, um, and he was writing various editions of a book called World Prehistory at the Times, so who brought in various speakers from outside. Um, and also a very brilliant archaeologist who died tragically young called David Clark. And, they were, and it was David Clark who was mostly teaching um, this Neolithic period of the, this Neolithic Bronze Age, Iron Age course. Um, and it was the time, it was a very exciting time in archaeology because it was really the beginnings of the first suites of radiocarbon dates around the world which were very much creating, completely transforming our understanding of, uh, of pre giving us a prehistory in many parts of the world and transforming our understanding in, in Europe. So, for example, this famous chart was produced in an article by Graham Clark in 1965 and it showed the first set of radiocarbon dates for Neolithic sites and it was pointing out that you had the, the earlier sites, you can see the black dots in the Near East, and then the, the, the ones, the half-circle ones across what was called the Linear Bandcramic, the first farming in Central Europe, and then a kind of outward expansion, including into, into Britain. Um, and it was an extraordinary transformation, because Gordon Child, the great prehistorian, had, had suggested that farming sort of began around 3,000, because he had to operate on links with, ultimately, pharaonic Egypt, the king lists there which went back to 3,000. So we had, down the bottom there was 3,000, and up in Britain was about 2,000, and the first radiocarbon dates changed 3,000 to 6,000. So it was an extraordinarily exciting time to be a, a student. Anyway, but, but the, the model of that Neolithic was very much, what we were looking at was the spread of people, new people, farmers, where agriculture beginning in the Near East and farmers spreading into Europe, bringing with them domestic animals, domestic plants. And that was the model, and David Clark gave quite brilliant lectures on that. Um, and why it was a great pleasure to, give, to be invited to give this lecture, um, as a rather precocious undergraduate, I remember being given essays by David Clark on the Linear Bandcramic and saying there was all this amazing stuff that I'd come across 
by this person called Jack Goldson, who was working in New Guinea at a place called Cook. Um, and it seemed to me, in, in terms of showing the gradual development of forest farming systems, um, it had an awful lot to tell us about alternative readings of the European evidence. It didn't get me anywhere. Um, mine is the famous undergraduate year where nobody uh, got a first with the Annus Horribilis in the history of Cambridge archaeology. Um, I think we're all FBAs, which is another thing. Um, anyway, and then actually I was trying to, I was reminding you, I'm sure Jack came through, probably in one of this series that David Clark, uh, that Graham Clark organised, to talk about Cook. Um, so, and as a result of that, as an undergraduate, and then moving into a PhD, which was trying to do kind of new readings of transitions to farming at that time, I actually did always end up, although my research grid took me first into Italy, my PhD, and looking at the European material most of all, I actually always followed that Pacific literature in a general way, very much as a result of, of Jack Golson's work uh, in New Guinea at the Cook Tea Plantation. Um, which eventually led me, in a rather pathetic way, after working, as Matthew said, in different parts of the world, ending up working in, in Borneo, which for somebody who'd always worked broadly around the Mediterranean was quite a big shift. But so, so it's a literature I'd always followed. So that's sort of preamble. So actually to, to get now into the, this topic, I mean, we've always thought about and people always talked about these three great revolutions, if you like, in prehistory, the human revolution, the, the, the beginnings of our species, and so on. And then the Neolithic or agricultural revolution, Gordon Child famously called the Neolithic revolution. And then he also talked about an urban revolution, uh, the, the, the beginnings of states and civilizations on the foundation of, of, of agriculture. And one can, if we start with how people have thought about this problem, and it, it's remained you know, one of the, the big questions, for us as prehistorians, really mo in most parts of the world, why did agriculture begin? Why did people change from a, a, a hunting, well, various mixes of hunting, gathering, fishing, um, to agriculture? Um, the Victorians had a fairly clearly a clear sense of why these things happened, and this is a—it's a very—it's um, a nice illustration, this man called Hodder Westrock wrote a book called Prehistoric Phases in 1872 um, and he, actually was, he was the first person to coin the word Mesolithic, we'd had the others Paleolithic and Neolithic before and you can see here he's got Paleolithic, Mesolithic, Neolithic, Bronze Age Iron Age, he's got the, you know, the three age system, he's got the various stone and bronze and so on tools associated with them, this is 1872 um, he's then got, you know, there's, there's the Paleolithic period, rough flints, the animals of the Ice Ages, mammoths and so on. And then he has a Mesolithic, which is still people living by hunting and gathering in the modern climatic era, the Holocene. So there with red deer, wild boar ox. And then you've got, you see domestic animals coming in and various other changes. On the left, we can see stages in the development of man. And you can see there, barbarous hunting pastoral agricultural state. Um, and... And this quote I've given here, it, it, it's, it, it's very typical of a lot of Victorian thinking that, in a sense, there was just this natural propensity of man to, to, to improve, to, 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 to move upwards. You can think of those cartoon diagrams of, of the kind of early human with knuckles on the floor leading up to you know, sort of 20th century. Um, in this instance, you can see he actually used the analogy as from infancy to childhood, so from barbarism to civilization. It was kind of a journey that begins in barbarism and ends, I suppose you could say, in 19th century Victorian England, which was clearly the culmination of that journey. And you can see here the upward development is the necessary result of the inherent and peculiar progressive power and improvable nature of man. And actually, it was thought that... that we have an awful lot of clever science and clever anthropological archaeology now, um, which is applied to problems like the beginnings of farming. Why did human societies change? But it's, it's pretty much also like all the debates about the origins of Homo sapiens and what's called um, modern behaviour, um, where underneath all the clever science and the clever anthropology, one does sometimes feel an almost Victorian sense in quite a lot of the writers 
that we are dealing with a, a sort of semi-divine species with the hand of God on our shoulder, that, that you know, it is a different sort of path. Anyway, that's the, that was Hodder, Westrop, Victorians. Most of, ideas, most of our ideas really do come from the um, Australian prehistorian who worked on Europe and the, the Near East primarily, Gordon Child. So he termed this Neolithic Revolution. He wrote a whole series of books on the Near East and on Europe, but he wrote these two wonderful books in 1936 and 1942. He was a Marxist, and the Man Makes Himself book was written at the time of the growth of fascism and at the same time the Russian purges and so on. So it's a very particular context of him reflecting on the human condition. In 1942, what happened in history was written in the darkest days of the Second World War, and an awful lot of what he's thinking and the kind of prehistory he's writing, you can see, is very much of, of the periods he was writing in. But it's, he put forward, really, the, the basic ideas that we've had, which is that, that it was the change in climate of, at the end of the Pleistocene, the Ice Ages, 10 or 11,000 years ago, um, into what's called the Holocene, the modern climatic era, that climatic change in some way provided a context for... Uh, now, he had particular ideas which, are, which, which don't hold now in terms of the nature of that climatic change. But basically saying, what was agriculture? It meant these, and I put here, new relationships of control over animals and plants. It gave you a reliable food supply. That allowed you to settle down, stay in the same place. That allowed you to, to build up food surpluses. That allowed you to for populations to grow, and it was on the base of all of that, he argues in both of those books, that out of that eventually comes the platform for the development of urban societies, states, and so on. So he's been still a huge influence for, in much of this debate. Um, somebody who was extremely perceptive, but, but was not so much cited, was the, the Russian botanist Vavilov, who... Um, had, was collecting plants all over the world for what was then the, the Leningrad um, Institute, or the Institute in, in Leningrad. And it's still one of the finest um, collections of, uh, of plant, modern plants from around the world. Um, and he, you can see from his dates, 1943, eventually he, he, he got across Stalin and was first of all sentenced to death um, for... I think it was sort of undermining Soviet agriculture. He eventually was commuted to life imprisonment. He died of starvation in, in prison. Um, what was even more extraordinary, his, um, this extraordinary collection of plants, his, 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 his team managed to preserve most of it through the, the siege of Leningrad. And I think seven or eight of them died of starvation and they preserved this extraordinary seed bank at the time. Um, anyway, he, he argued on the basis of the maximum numbers of the highest diversity of wild crop species, wherever they found them, that, that they were probably the places where one might have expected plant domestication. And that map of his is actually extremely... Um, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's different from what one thinks in some ways, but it is extremely perceptive and very different from... Well, Gordon Chard never really wrote about anything apart from the Near East and never wrote about America. Um, so that's, that's the background. The 1950s and 1960s was really the period where much of our knowledge took shape that's given us the, a current orthodoxy, um, where, as I explained, the late 50s when radiocarbon dating came in, and from the late 50s through the 1960s, there were a whole series of, of expeditions. It was really the beginning of kind of big science archaeology in that time, um, when excavations took place around the... Uh, fertile crescent. In fact, the term was used because Gordon Child suggested that early agriculture would be where the first cities were, which is therefore the Tigris and Euphrates. The arguments were actually, no, they wouldn't, the first farming wouldn't have been there. It would have been where the wild progenitors of the cereals like wheat and barley and wild sheep and goats and so on, they would have been up in the hills. And so the work concentrated in what were called the hilly flanks of the fertile crescent, as you can see up here, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, into Iran and Iraq and Syria as well. Um, and there was a whole series of expeditions to different countries, but they were characterised by, as I said, in terms of big sites, they were going out there to, to, to find Neolithic or farming, early farming villages, to date them with radiocarbon dating, and they had, therefore, botanists and zoologists looking, getting the, the, looking for the evidence of domestication of cereals, um, plants, animals. Um, and there was also a lot of work on things like uh, climate, environment, people doing... 
the pioneering pollen diagrams for the period. Um, and, and comparable work at that time was going on, sometimes with the same people, in other parts of the world, but most notably in, uh, in, in the central parts of America. Um, so the Braidwoods, one of the famous sites they dug, which is fairly typical, was Jarmo. And they, they found sites without pottery, so they had the term pre-pottery Neolithic. And they had pre-pottery Neolithic A, PPNA, which I'll come back to, and then PPNB. Um, and the, the PPNA sites, which we now know, were essentially the sites occupied in the first thousand years of the new Holocene climatic era. So in terms of years ago, 11,500 to 10,500. The PPNB sites were the next two or 3,000 years. And Jarmo was a good example of one of those where you had villages with houses, houses made normally in mud, mud on wooden frames, things like hearths um, and ovens inside them. So a whole sense of household organization of societies with remains of, of, of these are burnt, carbonized remains of plants which were recognized by the botanists as having the signs that they could see of modern domestic cereals, um, wheat and barley, you know, peas and beans, other things like that. And then also there were, there were um, indicators in the bones. They had arguments from animals getting smaller and also from changes to shape and things like horn cores for, for domestication of animals. And, and say there were enormous numbers of sites have been excavated like that, these early farming villages. And from that, with work in different parts, um, one's ended up with this kind of orthodoxy um, in the last, what, I suppose up to about 10, 15 years ago, that there were a, a series, a relatively restricted series of what were called hearths or centres of domestication, as you can see there, um, the Near East, uh, three, uh, Peru, what was called Mesoamerica, the Woodlands area of Eastern North America, um, the Sahel, which is much less was known about, that, that's that long strip, uh, and then China, the two little boxes, and it's north is millet and south is rice. And that was seen as, as and you can see, uh, again, it's an old chart, but it's a good guide to kind of where things were 10, 15 years ago. You can see 10,000 years ago BP, so that's getting on for that 11,000, it's the beginning of the Holocene. So you can see Near East, South China, later and later and later. But therefore, a, a sense of 10,000 years ago, nobody was doing farming, they're all hunting, gathering. 5,000 years ago, in a, well, five or four, push that a bit back, you know, 5,000 years later, there are people practicing different kinds of farming, different mixes of crops and animals, not so much animals in, in, in the Americas and so on. But you know, something has happened at a, a, at a global scale um, in these different regions. And then, that was, and then below, the idea that then farming dispersed out of those hearths of domestication um, and in many instances, people suggested that it, it wasn't just farming dispersed, but farmers, that people spread. And as I said, that was the, the idea we had in Europe when I was an undergraduate, that what happened is these new people came into a Europe that was occupied by Mesolithic hunter-fisher-gatherers and, and farmers came in. And um, Peter Bellwood, who's here, um, has, has been one of the main proponents of, of adding to that the fact that, 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 that these movements may also have been movements that carried with them some of the first languages. So, um, for example, the, the spread of the Bantu languages south here, the spread of the Austronesian languages across there, and the spread of the Indo-European languages, which are across from Europe into parts of India, that those, that those languages were also some, the beginnings of those languages were a signature also of the spread of, of farming and farmers. Um, and then, of course, we've been thinking all the time, okay, why, why did people become farmers? Um, one of the, the very influential studies was in the late 1960s where there were studies of modern hunter-gatherers, particularly Kung Bushmen, um, where archaeologists tended to think always that, that rather like in, in the, um, that child idea, that farming meant leisure, it meant culture, um, it, it gave you much more leisure than being a hunter-gatherer. And there were some famous studies done of Kalahari Bushmen which showed that actually they had much more leisure than, um, than say, Bantu cattle farmers around and so on. So what became quite common was what was shown here, that, that many people argued that perhaps since people wouldn't have wanted to get into, they'd only got into farming because it meant much more work if they were pushed into it. 
And so you see there that top series of boxes that, that some kind of stress. And the two common things were perhaps there were changes as a result of climate change at the end of the Pleistocene into the Holocene that would have pushed people to make choices to um, move to different sorts of relationships with plants and animals. And very commonly added to that was the idea of rising population, so more mouths to feed, pushing you into choices. So that's that top line of stress calling population exceeds resources, pushes people to adopt agriculture. And then a parallel series where, in a way, seeing the same sorts of changes, but in a way, think, so what referred to as pool models, where, if you like, things would happen, so you might, for other reasons, become more sedentary. As a result of that, you might start to change your behaviour. You'd stick around for a few more months with one kind of resource, and you'd change your pattern. So kind of somehow, unbeknownst, you, you become pulled into new relationships with plants and animals. So as I say, modifications of plant-human animal relations, people pulled into agriculture. And then, at this time, what was put forward as social models, and one common idea um, that my man, particularly Michael Brian Hayden talked about is perhaps there were some complex hunter-gatherer societies where you might have had com com competition between them with the beginnings of levels of sort of hierarchy amongst them. And so you might have had leading, leaders, powerful individuals, um, seeing opportunities to, to, to create food for things like feasting and so on. And so that might have been a trigger. And then more recently, uh, it, people have also suggested, well, perhaps in some instances it might have been rituals and ideologies that might have been prime movers. There was a, a French scholar, Jacques Covin, who argued this from the Near East, from looking very specifically at the PPNA sites, the PPMB sites, and going a little bit earlier into the last complex hunter-gatherers of the Pleistocene called the Natufian. And that was followed by the British historian Ian Hodder, who made similar arguments. Um, and, and they, they have had quite a lot of credence in particular from the discovery of some extraordinary PPNA sites that are, and therefore, which are therefore this, this thousand years before those villages like Jarmo, which were centres, what seemed to be major centres, built by people who were fundamentally hunter-gatherers, that they seemed to be major ritual centres. And the most extraordinary one of all is Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. You can see there dates to around 11,500, so just at this cusp, moving into the, the modern climatic era. And it's got a whole series of big stone pillars which have been brought in from some considerable distance. Um, it, so it's not a settlement, it's some kind of regional centre where these hunter-gatherers have built it coming together and, and they're using it somehow. And it's got all sorts of amazing carvings on the stone, so it's clearly seen as a major ritual centre. And a publication of that is this uh, it, from a publication of National Geographic um, is this chart, this diagram. And it's a wonderful um, sort of National Geographic speak. Um, and you can see that it says, Gobekli Tepe other sites are changing ideas about how itinerant bands of hunter-gatherers settled into village life as farmers, a turning point in history called the Neolithic Revolution. Two theories are outlined below. And you can see the top one, in a sense, is versions of what we've been looking at. It says, when the last blast of the Ice Age ended about 9,600, that's 11,500 years ago. How did people respond to a warmer environment? Well, you had more abundant vegetation, climate change, and a warmer, wetter climate. And wild game leads to domestication of plants and animals, permanent settlement, agriculture. So farming gives rise to organized religion. You can see the, the yellow ball on the side. So it's domestication, religion. And then if you go further on there, as after people began settling in villages and farming, religion arose to promote social cooperation. And it's certainly true that when you get to the PPNB villages, as soon as you get these settlements, there are all sorts of structures that, do, do, that are very much ritual structures where you get the sense of people involved in what you might say sky gods, the, the kind of earlier versions of the kind of pantheistic gods that, that we have. Um, and then the, the, the below, following the Gobekli Tepe, the fact that these hunter-gatherers have got amazing ritual centres, um, we get the new climate, wonderment at changes in the natural world, by God, the climate's changing, leads to religion. I suppose what it means is huge changes, therefore people, people seeing themselves in, in, in their own worldviews, how, how they relate to the world, fundamentally changing at this time of, of major climatic change the, the world over. So complete changes in, in, in how these people are relating to the natural world that they're part of, leading to religion, 
And then you can see that way, and then with these new kind of ways of thinking about yourself and the world, and I suppose control of animals and plants, is you get domestication of plants and animals. And it says at the bottom, people came together for rituals, creating the need to grow food for large groups gathering near sacred sites. So you have farming gives rise to organised religion, organised religion gives rise to farming. That's a, you know, an interesting contrast. What actually sorry, fits all of those, of all of these things, is, is people are always searching for this universal model. You know, it's a global phenomenon, even though it's very different in its chronologies and even though it's very, very different in the mixes of plants and animals. We're so confronted with this as a global phenomenon, there must be a global explanation. Um, and so we have had this long search for universal models, and in particular, unilinear models, which Hodder Westrop would recognise. This happened, and that happened, then that happened, and bingo agriculture. That sense of a, of, a, of a succession of stages. And that's really characterised the debate. Still does for most people. Anyway, what I wanted to talk about briefly were some of the things that one can really see. One is that um, there are things going on much earlier than 10 or 11,000 years ago which are really interesting. Um, secondly, there are all sorts of evidences for people cultivating plants in, in ways where they are cultivating them, but they haven't yet taken on the, gene the, the signatures of modern domestic plants, so pre-domestication cultivation. There's evidence for lots of places of domestication, not just those halves. There's multiple pathways, which is interesting, we'll come back to, of what's happening, and it isn't necessarily this linear story. Um, a lot of emphasis more recently on this is not just an economic um, process but it clearly is a so as we come there, it's a social, it's a ritual process. And in particular, you know, as we said, animals have animals eat food, humans have meals, and, and it's, it's thinking that too of the kind of social context what we're looking at. And then I want to say something also about sustainability and food globalization. So we take this first one, um, agricultural origins in the Pleistocene. I'm not saying they were farming, and indeed. Um, it's been pointed out fairly convincingly that it, the world's atmospheres, the kind of carbon in the atmosphere, you, you couldn't have grown plants. Um, the, the, it certainly wouldn't have worked, in, in particularly in, in the northern latitudes of Eurasia. It just wasn't feasible. Um, anyway, but there are um, signs that we're not just dealing with, if you like, opportunistic hunting and gathering. Um, from about 30,000 years ago in the... the in, in the northern latitudes of Europe. So this is this world of cold steppes, people hunting reindeer, really, really hard conditions. There are more and more sites now which have got what are clearly domestic dogs. Um, and so the assumption is, of course, that people were using, that some of these upper Paleolithic hunters who were, who were following herds of reindeer and so on may have been using, in some instances, dogs for hunting. Um, it's easy to slip into, in fact, this permits a whole debate, which I'll come back to at the end, but kind of we're thinking about it as the world we recognise. Yes, they would have had dogs that we can imagine, you know, as the, as the first animal that we're very close to and so on. And actually, there are some quite interesting burials, though, with um, cut marks on... So they're doing things to these dog skeletons, which are, we wouldn't see as, you know, to our faithful friend. And, and from the very end of the Pleistocene, there are some interesting in the nearest dog burials where, where they're treating dogs in the same way as humans. So we don't quite understand what it is, but anyway, that's going on. And the other area is in generally in um, island Southeast Asia, taking us into New Guinea, this, this whole region, um, where again, it, it seems pretty clear that, that the hunter gatherers or foragers in the rainforest, again, we haven't just got um, opportunistic foraging. Um, and the site I've been working on is one example of this, the near caves um, in Sarawak in northern Borneo, where they were first occupied by, we think modern humans, there, there is a, a modern human body buried, or, or parts of a body, teenage girl, which we've dated to 37,000 in these caves. These are from excavations that took place in the uh, 1950s and 60s, where we went back after 2000. Um, but... What we know there is that the, the caves were used from 50,000 years ago, which is pretty much around when our species, Homo sapiens, seems to have got into um, Southeast Asia. It might have been earlier, but around then. Um, and what we've got is in the sediments, we, we've, it's clear that people are mostly living most of their lives in the forest, but they're dropping into the caves every now and then 
Um, and so we, what we have is, is little episodes of occupation with ash and domestic rubbish, things thrown where they're, they're camping in the cave entrances. And what, in those, whenever we've got those layers when people are there, there's, there's starch grains and what are called parenchyma, the, the sort of tissue fragments of things like yams and sago. And sago is, is, is a tree where you chop the branches off and the Penan hunter-gatherers, the foragers of Borneo today, they, they, they make a plant staple out of it. Um, see it being prepared there. And, and we've, so we've got all these things in the sediment, but also we've got them on the stone tools. And these are some of the stone tools from the original. That's an example of one from the 1960s excavations, 50s excavations. So it's a tool from earlier this depth. I mean, it's getting on for 50, 45,000. It's a horrible-looking stone flake. But, and they, they were used for many different purposes. So it's got polish on it, and, um, and they were probably making bamboo and tools and, and textiles, and, I'm sorry, um, basketry and so on. But it's got, again, these fragments of those same sorts of, of, uh, of plant foods on them. Um, and the, the, the hunting was clearly very well organized. The main animal was a bearded pig, which was uh, running around on the ground. Um, but you can see from the species there, you've got ground story, understory, canopy. This is work done by Phil Perkins in particular, and Ryan Rebet. Phil Perkins is here. We're looking at the plant remains, at the, the animals. Um, and they argue from the, some aspects of the animals, like the ages, that they must be hunting them with traps and snares. And from slightly later in the Pleistocene, they've got bone points and the, the sting, the, the, the ends of uh, stingrays, these things, which is that. And again, what the microscope study showed is that they were, they've got resins and fibers and remains of the food that, that they're some kind of projectiles these people are using because they're able to get at animals that are living right up in the tree canopy as well. So there's quite complex hunting going on. And also, every time that we had people camping in the cave, these are pollen diagrams from reconstructing from these. So this is a, a world climate, but that's what we're looking at here differently. But these red, every time we have it, we have evidence that people were burning the rainforest, um, it was drier then, but, but still rainforest, to give, to improve the habitat, these edges of clearings, which would have presumably have been good for these things like yams, um, which would therefore have attracted the pigs where you had your snares and things, but also it was plant food that presumably they're also getting themselves. I mean, the, the, um, the Penan, they create glades and clearings around Sago now to, to they keep away the competitor vegetation. Um, some of these plants and nuts and things they were eating were, were toxic and they developed technologies for getting rid of the toxins um, and it's a technology apparently used by some of the Aboriginal groups of Australia in the tropical parts of Australia where they would dig pits and put these plants in with ash and, and leave them there for several weeks and that would leach out these, these toxins. And, and so, so the evidence of burning was based on, on rise, particular kinds of pollen that, that we know is associated with uh, open clearings, not just charcoal, which could blow in from forest fires. So it seems quite really convincing that, 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 they're, you know, that these people are getting into rainforest, learning all sorts of quite complicated ways for, for, for living in it and manipulating the landscape. Um, and the term that's been used by... Um, some scholars, including Tim Denham, who's in the department here, um, is, is these long before, thousands of years before rice cultivation of the area, there are things going on which you could call arboriculture, of, of somehow do, managing trees, and vegiculture, managing these, these plants. So it's ambiguous, but it, is, it clearly isn't just kind of opportunistic foraging. And there are other signs of that in other parts. I mean, Ili Cave is, is in the south, um, southern Philippines, and that's just right at the end of the Pleistocene. There are rather similar sorts of evidence of this veggie culture. And that just gives you an idea of what these things might look like, this taro cultivation. And then at the top there, that's a site, Wadi Kubanir, in the Nile Valley, 18,000 years ago. 20,000 was the last glacial maximum, the coldest, driest time ever that our species has had to cope with on Earth. So 18,000 is coming just out of that. Um, and it looks like there's permanent settlement there by the Nile, all sorts of rich fish remains and so on, um, fish resources, but it looks like they were managing a particular kind of, of plant called nutgrass. And similar arguments have just been put forward very recently for a cave that's being re-excavated in Ghana, Bosumpra Cave, same sort of period, 13,000 as, um, as Ili, 
And there you've got canarium and oil palm, which are also things which are, are talked about in the like canarium in the, in the Pacific. And again, the person who studied them has said it looks like there's some kind of likely management. So there, there is a pattern. So in a sense, you, you couldn't do such things in the temperate latitudes, but in the more tropical latitudes, there clearly are things going on in the Pleistocene which presage that world of agriculture later. Um, and in New Guinea, the, um, the New Zealand team of summer haze, uh, they've got rather similar evidence as near at Kosipa. You can see there, 49,000, 45,000, same sort of period. They've got evidence for plant collecting, forest burning. And there is some extraordinary evidence from the, this part of island, Southeast Asia, for animals and plants being moved around by people that we regard as hunter-gatherer foragers. Um, this, uh, this wallaby couscous is, is one where the case has been made. It might have been moved by these people to a, an island that was poor in resources. So that's the first aspect. So we're not saying they're farming, but in a sense we, we're learning more and more about the, the complexity of how these so-called hunter-gatherers are living around the world um, in these period. In particular, when it's in, in, the, in Southeast Asia, it, it's going back this 40, 50,000 years. Uh, in other parts, it's certainly post-LGM. Um, Pre-domestication cultivation. Um, when, we, when we domesticate plants, um, they... Obviously, we, we make it so they, they rely on us um, rather than in the wild. So if you take cereals, when they're, the wild cereals, when, they, um, when the plant becomes, uh, the, the wild plant, as it becomes ripe, the seeds drop out uh, naturally, um, whereas what we want is the seeds will stay there so we can come along and thresh it. And so there's a difference between the wild cereals today and the domestic cereals, which is in particular the thing that's called the rachis that, that holds the seed on, is tough, in, is brittle in the wild ones and tough in the, in the domestic, domesticated ones. They, they, they depend on the farmer. I mean, that's a, an archaeological example of these rachises. So if you like, that, that's the botanical evidence, definitely, that things have been cultivated. But... Um, Gordon Hillman, one of the archaeobotanists, worked at a site um, called Abu Huraira, which is a, a site occupied on either side of the, the, uh, the transition to the Holocene. Um, and it's clear that people were making intensive use of plants in the Near East. Ahala at 20,000, it looks like a more or less almost sedentary village based on the collecting of the whole range of plant foods. Um, and it is clear there are examples in, in Africa where people were collecting sorghum for a very long time. They're relying in the same sort of way, but without making the changes, the morphological changes that we know are of the domestic crop. Um, anyway, Abu Huraira site, um, there was a, a, a PPMB house, which you can, or settlement, you can see these square houses like Jarmo. Underneath it, there are these round houses of, of Natufian, so-called hunter-gatherers. Um, they were collecting acorns, cereals, grasses, legumes, they were clearly collecting the cereals um, before, they, before they were ripe. That, that we can see that they were collecting them green. Uh, you can see that from the, the, the microwave, the gloss on the sickle blades. They were having to cut them low down and before they were ripe. Um, and Gordon Hillman sort of rather scratched his head and said, well, as far as he can see, they were cultivating wild cereals. And he was kind of sort of, sort of joking to himself. But actually, that is now... Um, widely accepted. Uh, Archaeobotanist called Dorian Fuller has worked on a lot of material, including in India and China. Um, and there are more and more examples where he said that what they're doing is clearly everything that we would regard as cultivation, and it hasn't yet changed the crops, hasn't changed the plants to have those signatures that we see as domestication. Um, so, as I said, they're permanent or semi-permanent settlements sustained with, with cultivation and hunting, and her, but without formal agriculture. Um, the, this is another example of these extraordinary PPNA ritual sites, Jurfal Amar, um, which has got highly complicated structures um, and, and all, the, all the crops there, oh, sorry, all the plants there, you see, are, are wild, morphologically wild. Um, and Dorian Fuller's worked uh, in China and said you can see the same sort of thing. There's a very long history of rice being used. So it starts off with rice as a wild grass in just after the last glacial maximum, 18,000 years ago. By 8,000, probably they, they are probably cultivating um, pre-domestication rice. This site like Bashidang, thousands and thousands of grains of small grain rice. And then eventually, 
6,000 years ago, you, you get what we can recognize as, as domesticated rice um, mixed up with, with a foraging lifestyle at a waterlogged site called Hamudu. Um, and I think that's where um, Jack's work in New Guinea, that, that fits into that sort of picture too. We've got a very, very long history of swamp cultivation. Um, with, he said he's, he's got this various evidence, and so Tim Denham's work, work, work there too as well, the same, sorry, 7,000, 6,500 and so on. But and this is taken from one of their publications where you have, therefore, a whole series of activities on the left and the dates at the top, 50,000, 10,000, 1,000, and how you can describe those. You see shifting cultivation, wetland margin, intensive, intense, so on. So there's the same sort of, of picture of, of, of long sequences which don't fall neatly into a non-domestication, domestication. The third aspect is multiple zones of domestication. Um, one of the, and a lot of that's come from the genetics, um, where it's clear that, that a lot of, from the genetics, looking at modern animals and plants, and then increasingly getting better and better evidence from the archaeological, the ancient DNA out of archaeological examples, you can see in many instances there were multiple zones of domestication. Pigs in particular, looks as though they domestic in several places, and cattle uh, more than one place. Now, sheep and goat and cereals, um, one, of the, one of the problems of a lot of the work is that there are huge areas about which we know nothing. Um, and we always talk about the Near East South as a hearth of domestication. And, and the reason that work will concentrate in those hilly flanks, as I said, was because there are wild wheat and barley and there were wild sorts of sheep and goat there. Actually, similar sheep and goat and wheat and barley, at the, the, the natural spread of these things was probably from the East Mediterranean to the Himalayas. But we, we know virtually, for, for obvious political reasons since the 50s and 60s, there was very little work in eastern Turkey, no work in Iraq, really, no work in Iran. Syria's obviously now out, but that's only relatively recently. No work in Pakistan um, and large parts of, and parts of India. So you, you can go in uh, Afghanistan, huge stretch, where actually we could have very comparable processes that we know absolutely nothing about because there's been no real archaeology. So when you read any of the literature um, on domestication, half the time you're talking about sort of 20 square kilometres of Israel and Jordan, which have been you know, completely studied in huge depth. But there's these vast areas we don't know much about. Anyway, the genetics are clearly pointing to a whole range of different domestications, which does come back to that Favilov idea. Um, and it's pretty clear, I think, that, that parts of Central Asia, India, um, different parts of China, um, I think parts of Ireland, Southeast Asia, there are all sorts of, of processes going on. Um, and many, many parts of, of the Americas, not just these splodges as shown in the Vavilov picture, where there were different sorts of plants were being taken into cultivation in different ways. Um, by societies that come at the end that were joined to each other, connect to each other in ways that we really don't understand. Um, so that's there. And we've, at Cambridge, I've been um, head of a project looking at um, horse domestication, looking at the DNA in modern horses and ancient horses. Um, the woman who's done the work is called Mim Bauer. So she's looked at the, thousand, the DNA from horse heads and so on, about a thousand living horses from traditional breeds from Britain to China. And then she's looked at, actually now it's about a hundred um, ancient horses she's got. Um, and this, these, these, these red circles aren't domestication areas. Um, it, it's really the, the groupings that, that she comes and argues what they mean. But it's pretty clear that, that horses are domesticated in, in, in probably several places across the Eurasian steppes, um, or certainly more than one place, and other DNA studies point to that. What's also interesting, though, is the, what the DNA shows, it's a totally different sort of relationship, which in the, from our relationship, say, pigs, which is not particularly surprising in the sense of what's clear is that wild horses and domestic horses have been interlinked with each other, really, until pretty recent centuries, that that business of horse, wild populations intermixing with domestic populations, you can see in the genetics, as one can imagine in, in the relationship. Um, so that's in terms of there are many more places than those funny little halves. Um, the, the next thing is there are these multiple paths of domestication. Um, there, are, there are parts of the world, and I'd say Europe has got all of these, we just take Europe therefore, where there are people, there are societies where we can see that for a thousand years they, they combined hunting, gathering, and herding sheep and goat. Now, we don't know how on earth you do that because we've got all sorts of models 
of um, how hunter-gatherers think, how they, how, they, how they don't own resources, you know, they, they, their relationship to the landscape, and we have other ideas about ownership of herds, and these are ownership of fields, and, and we have these completely different models. Well, how on earth? We have no analogies for how on earth you combine these things for a thousand years. So there are some very long-lived combinations. At the other end, there are also instances where we can see people moved from being hunter-gatherers to farmers within, a, within like two or three generations where granddad and grandmum were, were hunter-gatherers and we've got fields and we've got cows in barns in Switzerland. And also, I mean, it's an extraordinary dramatic change. Um, and there are, so there are examples like that. There are examples we can come to where people were, new, were in touch with farmers but resisted farming for a long, very long time. Um, these Central European farmers, they were in touch with hunter-gatherers on the Atlantic coast for a thousand years before the, the latter um, seemed to have committed to different parts of uh, agriculture. Yes, in fact, the partial adoption, you, actually what you then see on the Atlantic seaboard is sheep and goat might take them here. Sometimes it's pottery with them because pottery almost certainly signifies different ways of processing food. So different aspects of, of, a, of an agricultural package are taken on. There are also examples of failed or abandoned experiments. And, um, and Dorian Fuller, in particular, has, has shown this. There are things that we regard as weeds, where places like the Near East, their stories are similar to wheat and barley and peas and what they begin with, and then they just get a bad, you know, they, 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 they don't follow through. So we end up with this small number of plant staples. But it seems clear that there were, there were other things as well that uh, are involved in similar sorts of processes that don't lead to the repercussions that they do. Um, and then there are examples of people moving forwards and backwards along a foraging farming spectrum. It isn't just a one-way journey in many parts. So you can see all that in Europe. I should also say that what isotope studies of the body chemistry of humans are showing, and, and studies also of the animals, the isotope, is that there are many examples also of movements, not just that kind of idea of, of farmers spreading across Europe like those big arrows, but actually all sorts of movements going on. Sometimes we can see that there are new groups of people moving into an area, leapfrogging into an area. Sometimes we can, there are cases where it looks like you've got um, women being exchanged from a, a hunter-gatherer community to a farming community and so on. So a lot's coming out from Europe at, at the lower level of, of, of the mobility in complicated ways. Um, and this is an example of one of these um, strange episodes of, of change. There's a, a cave in, in the Libyan Sahara called Wanafuda. And, and in the early Holocene, that's when it's much wetter, and there's the time when there were lakes and rivers in the Sahara, when you get rock carvings and things like um, crocodiles and so on, um, and elephants. And there were people living by hunting, fishing, and gathering. And in particular, they were herding, they were, sorry, they were hunting this wild sheep, the Barbary sheep. And in this particular area, as it, there was a, a, a dry snap first of several hundred years. And the cave, Wanafuda, has got dung deposits and fencing traces inside, which are these Barbary sheep. And it looks there for us, these people were sort of managing Barbary sheep um, for some several centuries. And then it gets wetter again, and people went back to hunting this animal. They're trying to kind of manage it and stall it and so on. Then they go back to hunting it, and about a thousand years later, it gets really arid, and the, the sheep, uh, well, actually, the sheep and goat first, and the cereals come in from the Nile Valley, and you get uh, Saharan pastoralism. Um, the, the final thing is, is this social context of, of food. Um, I talked about how Brian Hayden said perhaps you, these new foods are, are valued for feasting. Um, that's become slightly trendy, and it's, it's never really clear how you actually demonstrate feasting, but certainly one of the things that's been pointed out in many of these areas, some of these cereals might well have been most important first, not as food staples, but for alcohol because of the fermentation, which again you can see how magical that must have seemed. So wheat, barley, sorghum, rice, many of these things could well have had functions first, which were nothing to do the way we think about them for making disgusting porridge like things that they come later. Um, and at the case, case of these PPNA sites in the Near East. Uh, Eleanor Suti and Dorian Fuller have written a lovely article where they, went really, where they went back and looked in real detail at the context and what was going on with these, um, these cereals, these pre-domestic cereals and so on. And what they can show is 
both the, the cereals and the, the, the equipment used to reap them. So they're in highly ritualized context. So what there isn't is a world, if you like, in which there's a, a, a religious ritual sphere and a, and a domestic sphere, which, of course, in a sense, makes complete sense. I mean, that, that it would have been that, that, that there is a, a social context, a ritual context, a highly formalized cosmological context to what we're looking at. It isn't simply the way we tend to think about it in a rather functional way, oh, well, they're bound to be thinking, you know, if you do that, you end up with a much more efficient way of growing this, that, and the other, where we think about it in our own terms. Um, an example of this resistance, um, in, uh, in Borneo, the, the near caves, um, the excavations in the 50s and 60s um, excavated hundreds of burials of the Neolithic period, one of the biggest Neolithic cemeteries in Satwan in Asia. Um, and there are pollen diagrams that we've done, pollen studies, which can show that there is disturbed ground, there is burning, that there's pollen, and you can't tell the difference between, between wild and domestic, but there are, right, there are phytoliths of rice, which you can. And it looks like um, people are, that domestic, domesticated rice is in Borneo much earlier than it was thought. Traditionally, um, it, rice was basically thought of, that there, there are some rice remains, particularly domestic rice, in a cave in Sarawak, actually that Peter Bell was involved in, in excavating, which should date to about 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC. Well, thousands of years before that, now we've got evidence that rice was around um, in ways we don't quite understand, but it's definitely domestic rice. And the pottery from these graves, and these graves date to about, say, 4,000 years ago, um, there are a few, in a, in a very large sample, there are a few pots that have definitely got rice, domestic rice grains in them, so where... And John Crigbaum looked at the isotopes, the body chemistry of the bodies, and, and, and they've been redated by a PhD student of mine, Lindsay Lloyd-Smith. And what, putting those two together, what you can see is in the Mesolithic period, people are, are, are they seem to be foraging in, in a closed canopy world. Then there seems to be a, a world of more open vegetation environments, which he suggested could therefore be practicing a component of farming. But then they go back to closed, as if it's foraging to farming, back to foraging. And certainly we know that these people went on being foragers until um, relatively recently, trading forest products, um, like um, the things that make bird's nest soup. So it looks like these were foragers or vegiculturalists in that Tem Denim idea, who had this small scale, but quite possibly incredibly important engagement with rice, but not as a food staple. And then back to foraging in recent centuries. And indeed, there's been a study of, um, of, of all the potsherds from all the excavations in Sarawak, which are in Kuching Museum, where Chris Doherty from Oxford looked to see if there was rice temper in the pots. Now, rice temper, if you're using straw to put in the clay, that's not necessarily indicated you know, that, that you couldn't have rice farm without it. It's clearly a good indication there's enough there. Anyway, um, although you get things like this, these, these 14 sherds with, um, from vessels with a few bits of rice in, the first evidence that, that you've got an awful lot of rice, that people are probably relying on it in this part of Borneo as a food staple, is in the medieval period, or about European, or the kind of time of European colonialism. So on the one hand, they know about this stuff for thousands of years earlier than we thought. It doesn't actually become a staple food until really well, remarkably recently. And we've been running a project, I've been involved in the project with other colleagues up in the mountains of Sarawak called the Culture Rainforest Product Project. Um, and there, there are Kelebit people who say that they describe themselves as rice farms. They live in longhouses, and they say, uh, they, they, they used to, they're Christianized now, they make big ceremonial monuments. They said, we make marks in the landscape. We're farmers, we make marks. There are Penan foragers up there who hunt pigs and rely on sago and other wild foods. They say, we leave only footprints. In fact, they mostly rely most of the, both groups rely very heavily on the foods of the of the forest, um, wild wild foods, wild plants, wild animals. Um, the Malaysian government is encouraging, with a rather big stick, the um, the, the Penang to become rice farmers. And it's quite interesting. That the Kelebit say um, uh, we're very good rice farmers. The Penang are hopeless, and the Penang say they're very good rice farmers. We're hopeless, um, and. And they both recognize, in fact, they, there, are, there are two descriptions of plants. There's plants that you and I would recognize as both wild and domestic, and they're in one category. And there's another category called rice. And they say it's rice is the plant that needs people to grow it. 
And the kelebit, in effect, is saying rice is terrific, it separates you from the forest. Um, and the Penans say rice is terrible, it separates you from the forest. So there is an enormous cosmology to these plants. And you get some sense of, of how this thing seems to be known about, quite possibly used for ritualised processes, we don't know, but it only becomes the food staple after thousands of years. And we've got a similar evidence from that near evidence up in these mountains where we've built up a sequence of thousands of years of, uh, of history of, uh, of and people are living there in different sorts of ways, different sorts of, there are, there are caves, there are, there are some enclosed palisaded settlements, but you finally get longhouses about 500 years ago, 400, 500 years ago. And on the other side of this, we've got evidence for foraging, in particular using sago. So we have sago pounders with sago starch on and sago pollen and, 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 and phytolis and so on. And then finally, although rice is there, we suddenly finally get the same sort of time as longhouses, massive evidence of big clearance, growing rice, wet rice, paddy fields, hill rice. So there's something again which is longhouse life and rice and it goes together. So there are these long histories of resistance. And so, and then to end of these different topics, these consequences of this, all this complex process. Um, my colleague at Cambridge said the only thing that was easy to get into but hard to get out of. He said it's a bit like the internet. Once you're in, you're trapped in. Um, and as he said there, it had unintended consequences. It did result often in a very resilient social form. You know, that, that in a sense, there are different ways and pathways, but in a sense, once you're locked in to agriculture, there comes a point when you are really locked in. Um, and it does prove very successful on the one hand. But I also put these quotes. I haven't talked about this, but the fact, of course, living together, settling down. Um, you can see there these quotes of... Uh, Pollution, rotting, refuse, fetals, this is illnesses, rats, dogs, rabies, disease, tetanus, um, living with animals, human disease. And then this other quote from Ackermans and Schwartz. Life was difficult. People knew they were forever confronted with the four horsemen, death, famine, disease, and the malice of other men. So, good. Um, so we have this kind of wonderful world down here and this sort of horribleness. Um, but I want to just say something very briefly about the... the kind of, so there's that sustainability of the system and yet the repercussions of it. But the other aspect is, is what's coming across, again, particularly from the genetics, but also is how, again, people... On the one hand, we have this evidence for all sorts of different strange domestication histories, much more than those halves. Yet at the same time, in ways we don't understand, people were connected in extraordinary ways. And, and the two or 3,000 years after some of these things we've been looking at, you see, that's a map of how we know that, that millet spread from China right across what was to become the Silk Road, the Thousand Years War, into Europe. So we get the Chinese millets in, in the European Neolithic. At the same time, the African millets and sorghum spreading, um, and say wheat and barley going into, into China and so on. Um, and from here too, there, it, bananas seem to be domesticated in New Guinea. Um, there are phytolists of these things now in Sri Lanka and also in West Africa. And the first example of this, the context was debated, but they're, but they're not now. So again, we have no idea how amongst... Well, if you put a map across the world at that time, you've had people farming, foraging, farming, foraging, all sorts of ways, and yet somehow bananas there, crop, end up as bananas at the other end. I mean, so there are, I think in particular some of the genetics are just beginning to show how little we understand of how these worlds were, were linked. Some of the genetic consequences, quite a lot's coming out that is useful... Um, for the present day. Our horse work is being picked up by, say, Kyrgyzstan horse breeders of looking at the genetics of traditional breeds. Um, but this is also an example where, where people are looking at, we've done this in, in Cambridge, where you have a crop like barley, which is growing in arid zone hills in Near East two or 3,000 years later. It, it's growing in, in an extraordinary series of different environments um, high up, far north latitudes. And so there's been a lot of work on what's happened to the, the genes that are, that are changing. Like how is it that a thing that's, that, that, that naturally grows in, uh, sort of it, it goes through the winter and then flowers and so on. How, how do we do it that it then ends up growing completely different ways? And so various sorts of genes are being isolated and put back into modern crop breeding. Um, that's that one. So just to finish there, for why did our ancestors become farmers? Well, obviously, it's rather depressing at the end to say, well, I, I don't know. Um, so, and I'd say here, um, ever since the Enlightenment, domestication has been reified as the watershed 
between a truly human way of life separate from nature and an earlier way of life that was part of nature and not truly human or civilized. The existence of such a boundary is run as a continual thread through most archaeological theorizing about the origins of agriculture, resulting in the main questions being first of locating where and when in any particular region the boundary was crossed and then how and why. Yet the Western focus on separating humans from the rest of nature is just that, a particular notion of being in the world that's quite alien to many other societies. As the anthropologist Tim Ingold has written, many non-industrial and pre-industrial societies envisage the world not as we do, as sets of separate entities such as people, plants and animals, and discrete species within those groups in the Linnaean sense, but as a web of relationships in which species are defined in relation to each other, with the lives of people, plants and animals and the physical landscape entwined in the playing out of these social relations and worldviews. Um, and it, it, it's the hardest thing of all in a sense. We can only approach this from our post-enlightenment rationality. We're trying to think our way into a pre-rationality world where people won't be doing stupid things or they'll die. I mean, they've got the same capacity as us as taking wise and stupid decisions, but trying to think of that different world uh, and, and why they therefore took the decisions they did. And as I've tried to show in this lecture, the archaeological record, just like this anthropological sense, is showing complicated, ambiguous stories about foraging, farming, and transitions in many regions of the world that are very different from that traditional narrative of the Neolithic Revolution. People adopted, adapted, or resisted the new Neolithic technologies and foods in many different ways, at many different timescales, for widely different reasons. Such decisions have many unintended consequences, and over the long durée of prehistory, we can see that for many societies, the eventual results were irrevocable changes to their social as well as their physical landscapes, and the transformation of once optional additions to forager lifestyles into obligatory components of new ways of living. Hodder Westrop may have been right in recognizing agriculture as the most important step in the development of civilization but it's important not to impose our own notions of rationality on our prehistoric ancestors and create a past in our own image, which was that L.P. Hartley very one put the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there, which we're trying as archaeologists to understand. And then as Peter Rowley Conway observed in the case of the Euro-Mesolithic, the European Mesolithic, we know that agriculture was to appear a thousand years later. They didn't. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.